Hello and welcome to Gaming Broadcast, the official podcast of GamingBroadly.com. I'm your host, Jamie Dale, otherwise known as JD. Uh, and I'm your co-host, Kyle. Otherwise known as... Otherwise known as Kyle. <laughs> um, today we have a super... Cool K! <laughs> it's a... To the max! Coming at you live! <laughs> From D.C. We're in D.C.? From Don't Call. <laughs> I can think of real big words that start with D and C. Deuteronomy's Cave. That sounds gross. <laughs> Stay out of Deuteronomy's Cave. No one wants to go there. Uh, except for... Deuteronomy, maybe? Does Deuteronomy want to climb into his own cave? I mean, he's the only one that probably wants to go to his own cave, right? That's probably true. Okay. All right, so tonight we have joining us Dr. Gregory Price-Grieve, who is a professor and the head of the Department of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Uh, for for quite a long time. He's been doing awesome stuff where he's been researching and teaching at the intersection of digital media, Buddhism, and the theories and methods for the study of religion. So how are you doing tonight, Greg? I'm good. Thank you guys so much for um, uh, interviewing me, and I'm glad that you have all the dogs with you. Because <laughs> I, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, no problem. I like to make sure that all of my guests feel properly um, supported by my animals. We're up to Do your, four dogs. Your... Is that how many we have? We do. Do your dogs have the Buddha nature? Uh, well, they're pretty large and calm. Does that count? <laughs> no, you're supposed to say moo. Moo! Ah, that's right. That's going to be on my gravestone. Nothing. They have nothing. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, excitingly, today, well, not today, I guess this happened a while ago, uh, but Greg released finally a book that has been, been in the works for a while. Cyber Zen, Imagining Authentic Buddhist Identity, Community, and Practices in the Virtual World of Second Life. And you helped research it way back when, almost like a decade ago. I did. It was super exciting. Right. My name is a decade in... right now? Uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, God. Hard to believe. Yeah, because I, I started, I, I don't know if Jamie's part was a decade ago, but I started researching it a decade ago, 2007. Oh, wow. And then it kind of, I sat on it maybe for three years because I was like, I didn't think that this could be a, a, you know, a realistic research topic, but then I decided just to do it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because I was spending so much time in there anyways. <laughs> like, might as well make this thing. So almost a decade ago, uh, I started researching religion on Second Life. Second Life is a virtual, 3D virtual world, which is created by Linden Lab, which is a San Francisco-based uh, tech firm. Uh, it's kind of like a mix between World of Warcraft and other multi-user games. And then if you ever played the old-fashioned MUDs, like um, Lamamu or any of those, um, it's a mix between those two. And how it differs from World of Warcraft is there's really no story at all. It's all created by the people using it. Sure. And so... And I got on there because I've always been interested in computer worlds all the way back to when I was a, a, a wee lad. Um, <laughs> my father was a computer engineer and he would bring home this giant modem 
which is the size of like a PC now. And you would actually stick the old landline into it, and it would be like these giant rubber cups, and you would stick the phone in there. And then I, oh. it was yeah. And then I would play um, Adventure, uh, which is an old textual based cavern. Have you guys ever played uh, Adventure or Cave Adventure? No. Oh, you should. No. So when you get off, there's you know Google Cave Adventure video game. So it's like the first virtual world video game, um, and it was it's all text based. And when I played it, it was done on um, big things of paper, you know, the old computer paper. Mm-hmm. And it's really... Oh, like the, the one with, the like, long the... Long of paper? Yeah. yeah and, you with know, the holes would, on the side? You would type in, you know, go left, and it would go... And it would, like, give you the next scene. It's really interesting that it did it, like, through, like, the printer. Because it almost feels like... It's almost like a fax machine in a way. Like, it's almost something alive and, like, sending you a message. Like, that's so interesting. I was, you know, so as a kid, you know, I mean, I had to be like six or less. And it just Mm -hmm. fascinated me because of um, really an interaction with this virtual space. And you could walk through it and, you know, you would go like, go left or go up. um, And what was really interesting about it, it it was completely, it had no narrative at all. It had no audiovisual. It was just text. But the procedural level was amazing. So, um, you know, you would do like throw knife at dwarf. And, it, and then it would say dwarf dies. Um, and, it, and it's it's kind of like a really bad dungeon master for like DMZ. yeah yeah really yeah but, no um, no flavor text. It, but 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 you know so Google it because you can get online and it's actually really fascinating. I have my students play it and they're all really um, skeptical, but then they all get into it and you know and like two hours later they're still like you know, <laughs> stuck in the maze of twisty passages. They've now like missed their other classes. Yeah, yeah, like, um, but it's all textual anyway. So, so, um, uh, so I, you know, I've always kind of been fascinated with that potential for virtual worlds on computers. And Second Life fulfilled it to a certain extent. You know, when when Jamie and I were doing the research, there was over a million people on it. Um, wow, which is kind of fascinating. And and for a moment there, like in 2007 to 2009, it seemed like it might be the future of the internet. But then social, <laughs> yeah, which you know, in retrospect, we didn't know. But then um, uh, Facebook and social media basically took over and became where we are now. It would have been a much different world. <laughs> Trump wouldn't have won without you know. The dominant digital media. He could have made his hands as big as he wanted. Yeah, he probably wouldn't, wouldn't need to take over the world if he had the fantasy to do it on in the computer. I mean, real estate was a big deal in Second Life. If I remember, it was like a huge money maker for a lot of people. Yeah, people were and buying Second people, Life real estate. Yeah, people were buying virtual real estate, and there was a, you know a few people who had made millions of dollars. Um, there was a bunch. I forget her name, but it's in the book. But it's. Um, you know, business world was all. So it, was, it seemed like it, it, at, when, when we started to look at it, it seemed like the future of the Internet. And what I found fascinating was that uh, there was all this religion on it. And originally, we, I looked at all sorts of different types of religion, everything from Islam to Christianity to Judaism. Uh, but I ended and, but there was so much of it that, you know, we had to focus down the research and then we started looking at buddhism and then it was finally i just settled on zen buddhism and then one particular um group on there 
I forget what your question was after all that. <laughs> no, like just uh, explain your your research or like why you chose to do this. Yeah. Yeah, and so, so and I got interested in um, online meditation, which you know I I grew up as a Buddhist. I'm a second generation Buddhist. My parents were hippies mm-hmm. who got lost out in California in the seventies. <laughs> and um, classic. Yeah. Um, like ah, oh, this is a good enough place to <laughs> to build a house. We can't go any further. We've run out run out of space or out of you know land. Um, uh, <laughs> But, you know, when I saw people meditating online, I was like, you can't do that. <laughs> That's not allowed. Yeah. But, uh, um, it, it did, you know, so I, I was very skeptical. And so as an anthropologist, my goal really is to try to understand those things I don't understand. And um, so that's the book is really an attempt to understand and theorize what um, people were doing online and and two things really came out of it. One was how silence works. And, um, and silence is not just a lack of communication. Silence is uh, a form of communication. So, you know, silence in an elevator is going to be different from silence in front of a grave, which is going to be different sure. from silence and meditating. So I got really interested in, in not only how does silence work, but um, in how silence and meditation works and why Zen is so fascinated with silence. Hmm. Man, the idea of silence online. Yeah. I, I forgot about those weird silence online, but it seems like That sounds like you another talk game. to some <laughs> The Silence Online. Yeah. Um No, but like when you think of when I think of the internet, I think people think about it as like the information highway in terms of there being lots of like noise and conversation happening between people. But it, so it was really interesting to sit in "quote unquote" like silent spaces, not remembering it. Yeah, and the thing is, it, it makes you realize that um, communication is not just a transmit transmitting of information, but it's really connects practices together. And so, you know, so for me, the silence kind of um, called into question the transmission theory of how communication works, and it's more one in which the different poles in the conversation are conditioning each other in a sense so it's just interesting for me it kind of just you know i mean again i I tend to study things which i um i don't understand (laughs) do you feel like you uh understand any better i do i do think i understand it now and so now i feel like that's really what the book was about you know my big tattoo on the side of my arm jamie the one that says wtf (laughs) it's not true i know the huge one it's like the whole arm (laughs) um i see it whenever you take off your um your plaid teacher jacket yeah yeah it's under there somewhere um, that is true though but yeah so so i got interested <laughs> in, in basically um i, I got in, interested in methodologies for how do you ethnographically study silence and then the main thing i got interested in was is this authentic an authentic practice or not and the conclusion i came to was it's an authentic practice if it's not an authentic practice if you think that it's actually mirroring asian types of classical Asian notions of practice, especially as it's put forward in scripture. But it is authentic if you think of it existentially as something which is helping people to find meaning in their lives. That's that's the book in a nutshell. Hmm. Oh, that's so hopeful. <laughs> the early uh, 2010 was a hopeful time. <laughs> well, I, I, think, I didn't finish it until... I, 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 I did the final manuscript was finished last year in September, so... I think it is, I think it is helpful. I, I think it's um, it's a little bit depressing and also helpful. I think it's depressing 
because in kind of our contemporary neoliberal world, there's few places in which we can experiment and try alternative forms of community. Mm-hmm. So one of the only ones left is the virtual frontier, which is really kind of sad, hmm. um, but I think <laughs> true. So, the, you know, online, these virtual communities are some of the few spaces where people can try out with pretty low risk and not very expensively different ways of being human and different forms of community. Sure. Oh, man. Now I want to go online and talk to all my friends. I guess we are. I am online talking to all my friends. I think we do that um, uh, almost daily. (laughs) Jamie, do you remember that time? I think this was yours. Do you remember you were sitting there and they asked you who you were? Mm, Yeah, I was was part of the community that was really struggling with whether or not to attach real-life identities with the second-life avatars. Right. So... That question was asked, or the question about whether even that question should be asked. <laughs> right. Was asked a lot. Like, a, personally, like, who you really are? Like, your well, real identity? No one knew. That was, a, but wasn't it really kind of ambiguous? Like, who are you? And, like, how do you answer? Because you don't know, yeah. you know, in real life, you'd be, you know, I'm Kyle, I'm Jamie, I'm Greg. But right. when you were online in Second Life, how, you know, am I my avatar? Am I my, you know, the real life person? How do, you know, how do you answer that question? Right. Yeah, I mean, because my name was YT Cryotank. So I was like, do I answer in the role play like YT or Jamie? Or I always wondered, too, if I should answer based on my bio, because if they read my bio, like, were they asking, like, who are you in terms of, like, because I had to put I was an, an anthropologist that I was researching. <laughs> like, for, like they, they fact-checking? <laughs> <laughs> That's well, not what your bio says. <laughs> Yeah, because because of the um internal the IRB, which is the um kind of the ethics board for the research at, at the university, we had to have this really bureaucratic profile. <laughs> oh, really? It was pretty funny. It was very different yeah. than other people's. Right? Yeah. yeah. So other people should say, you know, I like to shop and walk down by the beach, and then ours was like <laughs> this whole paragraph of bureaucraties about you know, participant observation and all of this kind of things. So. Everything you're saying to me is being recorded if you don't want to be included in this study, say. <laughs> so. Blank, blank, blank. But I used, um, I used, I used that, um, that insight from your, that, that piece of ethnography for the chapter on um, identity, actually. So there's, I think it's, I forget what chapter it is. You think I'd remember. Uh, it's like chapter four, <laughs> the one on virtual robes. That's pretty cool. Have you, I know, I've been curious because... I find myself, and this is years later, because I did this back in, I think, 2008 through 2010, so about seven seven years ago, I find myself missing that community, because I spent, I think, probably two to four hours like in that group of people every week for an extended period of time. And you were doing the, uh, you, you were doing, in the book, I think I called them the agnostic Buddhists, right? I, I, yeah, I Buddhism without beliefs. That um, so that group that I think was really up. popular at the time. That that group oh. broke up, hmm. so they're no longer <laughs> so there. Sad. When when did they break up? Really soon after Jamie stopped doing it, they had a big crisis where they couldn't. Um, I, what I argue in the book is that the the you know so I was looking at them and I was looking at this kind of more straightforward Zen group and the Zen group I was arguing could stay together because meditation was the central focus of what they did. Mm-hmm. The um, this agnostic group, the central focus really was to read this one text text on Buddhism without beliefs. Um, and when they tried to become a community, 
the whole thing fell apart because the argument I make in the book is there was no um, kind of feeling of we-ness, of communitas, which the other group created through meditation. Um, hmm. That's what I argued. But they basically broke up soon after Jamie stopped getting on there. Once they had it, once they stopped having attention. <laughs> no one's researching in us anymore. Jamie's not there. We're going to stop going. <laughs> but they got in a big, huge fight. Yeah, a big fight. Uh, but basically to ar- argue whether you could be, um, you could take the refuges, which are the um, the three refuges of Buddhism, whether you could do that online without knowing who the actual people were. Mm. Yeah. I think it was also tied up to like a lot of people didn't think that organized religion was a thing because of the book that they were basing it off of, like an important thing. So then it became like, why would you even want to take refuge? Yeah. All that stuff. Um, refuge is kind of like the... I don't want to equate it because equating is always dangerous, but it's like if you think about like converting or like confirming your belief or attachment or like membership. It's it's how Buddhists they, they they give their intention to aim to be a Buddhist. That's basically okay. <laughs> yes, that's the, there we that's, go. The that's much nicer. That's the technique. Yeah, and, and it's taking refuge in the Sangha, which is the community, in the Dharma, which is the teachings of the Buddha, and in the Buddha, who is the Buddha. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Would he say he was the Buddha? I don't know. I, it's really he's really hard because they have no. Um, you talk about mediation because <laughs> he didn't write. No one wrote anything down. Wasn't it something like three hundred or three thousand years later? Or something? Uh, it was like it was only a couple hundred years that, um, in the first council in four hundred BCE. Yeah, that they wrote it all down. But but it would be like um, you know if you can imagine it would be like. Uh, we are, I was just at a funeral, which is probably what it would have been like, where everyone sat around telling stories that this guy had told, right? Yeah. And they were all different from each other because they had told different people different stories, and they had all gotten kind of twisted through people's, you know. So. It's like Rashomon. But yeah, with... exactly, right. <laughs> with Buddha. With Buddha, yeah. Oh, man. Well, I'm not. So I'm, I'm not about... helping your interview here, am I? We're, we're no, it's wonderful. We're tangible. <laughs> This is actually much more focused than how we usually are. So oh, good. Okay. Good. <laughs> uh, we we get distracted by shiny ideas mm-hmm. and then kind of frolic. Oh, frolic I like the away. idea of a shiny idea. Can I steal that? No, that's uh, that's copyrighted. Ah, damn. Well, I'll put a copyright after it. Okay. Yeah. Shiny idea, copyright. <laughs> yeah. No one else can have a shiny idea. I have a I have a question about silence. Okay. Actually, because this is a something I've been thinking about, so I'm curious about your ideas on it. But I know when you were you were my professor in a classroom, you were also experimenting with teaching mindfulness in yeah. your classes, which incorporate some sort of silence um, to some extent. Do you find that? I don't know. I'm trying to think of like if your research on silence within virtual realities like affected how you were teaching mindfulness in the classroom. Yeah, I didn't really do it much after I did it with you because I started to worry about the religious implications of teaching mindfulness oh. in the classroom. And I started That's good to, to know. I like that everything stopped when I left. It did. Everything <laughs> everything's the same. Um uh, I started to worry that it was a form of crypt- crypto Buddhism. Oh, and that in I try to worry about two things actually one is a crypto Buddhism and two um, that it was a kind of a form of Orientalism mm. and and again I don't I 
pretty much everything is a form of Orientalism. So <laughs> I don't you know. I don't know. What, I don't know what you can do about it. But so I, I, you know, I did a little bit after that, but I never really. Um, I dabbled with it, um, but then I didn't ever follow it up that much because of those concerns. Ah, so was that a concern? Just out of curiosity, that did students approach you with those concerns, or was it just no, through reading just, and this, processing? This, this, this is just me worrying about it, you know. So, so religious studies is not theology. Religious studies is supposed to be talking about what other people have said about religion rather than practicing religion, and it's not supposed to make any theological claims about the nature of the divine. And I was worrying that maybe I was getting a little close to the boundary. So it was self censorship, mm. if anything. Hmm. I mean, I, it's I still, still so hard with with Buddhism though, because so much of it is not about talking. I know, and that was my excuse. And then I got in a not a, um, I I got in this. Uh, so, like in America, we are we have we have religious freedom of belief, but we actually don't have religious freedom of practice. So we're not allowed to practice whatever we want, but we can believe anything we want. Okay. Um, and again, the the kind of the proof text for this is polygamy. Um, true okay yeah uh and so uh any and i i can't remember how it finally ended up with the peyote churches also i think they actually won that they're allowed to take peyote but um and so it's interesting that you can teach about people's beliefs but if you start to bring their practices into the classroom uh, people start to get a little squirrely you know if i had people come in and pray (laughs) that would not go over well. Hmm. But if I had them... <laughs> no, I have to admit, I would probably be a little... <laughs> yeah, but if I had them... A little about, bummed. Yeah, talk about people's beliefs, then it's okay. And so some of them, some of me bringing the practice into the classroom was um, was trying to bump up against that distinction between practice and belief. But then, But then I kind of self-censored because I was worried that my own bias was allowing the crypto Buddhism to come into the classroom. And I, I didn't think that was a good thing, yeah. but no one complained. No one, it was just me thinking about it. A preemptive, Pre- preemptive strike against yeah, yourself. Self, self-censorship. <laughs> that's, that's good. I mean, I did any, maybe not the silence aspect, but I know I'm kind of jealous actually, because I see it happening and I wish I was in the classroom, but I know you've been incorporating a lot of playfulness into your classrooms in the last few years, or at least a lot that you've posted pictures of. I don't know if it's actually. No, no, no. So yeah. So I mean, I think after, um, so rather than playing with the contemplative elements, which is what I was doing when uh, you were there, um, I started to actually use play in the classroom. And so there's this whole kind of movement to gamify things. Sure. And, yes. and I didn't do that because I think that really is just a neoliberal excuse to bring in certain types of neoliberal mind frames. Um, oh, yeah, like how to make labor for other people exciting and fun so they want to do it. Exactly. You know, so if you sell, <laughs> if you sell so many widgets, we'll give you a token. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I, as you can tell, I worry about things a lot. So I... <laughs> I, I started, I, so I never, I read a lot on the gamification and actually wrote some papers on it, but I never actually used it in the classroom because the part of play that I'm interested in 
So if you look at play, you can kind of divide play into three different parts. There's puzzle solving, um, like kind of sports and gamesmanship, and then uh, creativity, which is like the pretend and the role play. Yeah. And the play I'm most interested in is the role play. Um, for me, that's the most interesting. Hmm. You're back in the cave. The I'm back story. in the cave. Yeah, I'm back in the cave. Except <laughs> it's not Plato's cave because it's got a, it's got a little dwarf in it. <laughs> with a little knife with the right syntax. <laughs> yeah. So after you left, I um I taught uh I taught a, a few classes on digital media and religion, and then I fine tuned that down to this really cool class on um religion and video games, and. No, no, yeah, religion video games. And the class was set up as a series of what I called Quest Labs, which were, I used Skyrim just because I love the game. And um, basically the students would go into Skyrim kind of as virtual ethnographers and interpret different things going on in the game through the different theorists that we were reading in the class. <laughs> How cool. <laughs> yeah. Was there a particularly interesting anecdote from that in terms of someone who had a really funny philosopher and a funny moment it doesn't have to be funny it could be meaningful also actually the, uh so one year I, I i worked on far cry 4 which is um the game have you either played far cry 4 yes yeah so, oh wait i think kyle is that the one uh, I, I don't know, know if you have played? three or four um, so four, four is the one that takes place in the fictitious nepal civil war Yes. yes. Okay. That, yeah, that's the one yeah, you have, you Jamie. Know. Yeah. And You're like so, looking for your father's grave. Yes. Hey, did you know that if you just play that and sit there at the very beginning for 15 minutes, you beat it? Yes. Oh, that is the first thing I did when I got the game. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was so funny. I'm like, I beat the game. I was telling my son, I beat the game. It's like he just started playing. I mean, it's an excellent lesson on the importance of doing nothing. Yeah, it really is. Sometimes. It was really hard for me, but I, you know, I went down. I, I, I went down and got a glass of wine and came back, and I'd won. <laughs> um. And no one had to die. No one had to die. Yeah. Well, really nobody you saw um, had to die. Yeah. Oh, fair. <laughs> um, but so we were working on notions of identity using Goffman and Butler. And these students wrote an incredible paper comparing pagan men as kind of the evil uh, uh, quasi-homosexual figure uh, versus, um, oh, what's her name? Bandra, who's the living goddess. Good girl. Mm. And so... Um, I don't know. Yeah, so it was. It was uh, that paper. I, I still think about it. And the th reason I'm thinking about it is, um, uh, I'm working on a project right now comparing um, games about Nepal to to games made by independent game makers in Nepal. Oh, oh that sounds so interesting. Okay, right. So that's actually what I, you know. That's what I'm, on my other computer. As my wife walked in here and said, "You've got four computers going." Um, <laughs> uh, on my other computer is Far Cry. It's all ready to go. So that's going to be what I because I want to play through it. Again. Oh, thank you. Are there any are there any I guess mainstream games from Nepal? I don't want to use the word mainstream. No. I guess any popular games that were made by a uh, Nepalese company? No, there I mean there's they're all independent, so there's no they just don't have the infrastructure for it. Um and what was interesting to me is you know if you look at the games that are take place in Nepal, they all kind of use Nepal for this notion of Shangri-La and mm -hmm. this exoticness. Yeah. Um which if I remember in Far Cry was fairly drug induced. Right. It's really interesting, right? Yeah. So um yeah, so yeah, I just was taking screenshots of that, right? So kind of this drug induced um notion of mysticism and Shangri La, um, which goes if you look historically goes back to the um 
to the hippie overland trails from the 1960s. No, it's all, you know, it's all tied together. It's not like any of this stuff. It, no one's making this stuff up. It's all uh, the same cultural. <laughs> Just recycling. recycling. It's all copyrighted. Yes. Except for shiny idea. <laughs> um, uh, and then we'll the, sell it to you for a million dollars. Um, but then the, um, the games that they're making in Nepal, they're mostly interested. They're mostly interested about edification and teaching people things and, uh, the notion of national development and making you a better person. Uh, so it's interesting, you know, I mean, they, they don't, the games don't look anything, they really don't look like each other, either in platform or in gameplay. So I have no idea what I'm going to do with all this, but that's, hmm. that's where I am in the middle of this project. <laughs> the, European, oh, wow. the European community is paying me to do it, so I'll have to send them something at the end. <laughs> The European just the entire European, European community. community. <laughs> you just CC everyone. Everyone, right? Yeah, <laughs> except the English, because they are no longer part of it, so they don't get any of this knowledge. <laughs> okay. <laughs> What's the password? <laughs> we really password. wanted to know about Nepal. <laughs> Sorry, British folks, you're out of luck. Oh. I'm not helping you. Uh, I'm sorry this is getting so silly. It's not being a... No, it's perfect. All right, just Um, edit out the silliness. No, we'll keep it. We'll we'll edit out everything that was meaningful Uh and just leave. (laughs) That's silly laughing. How how receptive are, like, college students to, like, uh, the whole um, role-play learning kind of a thing? Um, I'm not sure. So, again, I don't know if you should... um, I'm teaching a class on religion and Dungeons and Dragons next term. Okay. In which my friend and I, we, we wanted to, it's kind of an experimental class in that we're trying to use role play to talk about some of these different issues. Um, and so you'll know more if you talk to me like in a year. Okay. Because right. how, how, how it went over and whether the legislature is still paying me for my job. So. Right. <laughs> cool if you remember if you remember um dungeons and dragons was the focus of a moral panic yeah i I do remember that it was they're afraid that it was satanic yeah and and that although the people thought that they were doing a game in fact they were doing real satanic rituals yeah i I remember uh the movie i think it was mazes and monsters um what was it uh with With, tom hanks a a, a young tom hanks yeah yeah. we're like eventually like i think he like kills himself at the end or something right that comes from the game or something i don't know yeah so that comes from um like you know so basically the same way that i guess you know they they, at one point they blamed rap music and then they blamed there was comic books for a while comic books islam um, <laughs> the whatever the bugaboo of the, of the moment is, um, the Dungeons and Dragons, yeah. yeah, the Republicans. No, I saying they're the, they're the, um, um, uh, they. So for you know, so for a good twenty years, um, Dungeons and Dragons was kind of the you know a focus of a, this moral panic, and so part of the class is going to be talking about that moral panic and what does you know what does what does religion mean in a game like that. Um, but another part of it will be to use the role playing to explore things like gender and race hmm. and violence. 
And um, but I haven't done it yet, so we'll see. Uh, I'm so jealous. I really want to do it. I've been wanting to do something with with my students that's similar, but more related to like American Jewish history. There's so like making mini campaigns for like little fifth grade students to like make up these magical characters to kind of play around in a time period in history. There's a there's a whole thing called um which I, I'm stealing for this class, which is called um reaction to the past. Have you ever looked at this? Nope. No. So it's a huge it's just a huge movement and so basically I'm sure whatever whatever historical moment that you're doing they'll they'll be one made up for it and it has primary sources and it has all the different bios for the different people involved. Hmm. And, oh, that's amazing. And what's really fun about it is that it doesn't have to come out the same way. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, so like they could have decided not to sign the Declaration of Independence, you know, or um, so, but it's great. So I've used that in the past too. Um, we're talking about different historical moments, okay. especially about. Part- I do you remember? Yeah, go ahead. I was watching a SVU, the Law and Order SVU, which is a guilty pleasure of mine. And they were like, they ran into an actor who was pretending to to fight Napoleon because they were imagining what would have happened if Napoleon invaded America. And I remember the line would be like, "This is America. We won't speak French." <laughs> you <laughs> refuse. <laughs> Very dramatic. That was the point at which a mass overthrow of Napoleon was going to happen. <laughs> but you know, if, but for me, um, you know, if you look, if you look at education, there's there's two sides to it. There's kind of the banking model where you're transmitting information, which then will be regurgitated back to you, back to you on a test. Yeah. And then there's then there's the kind of what always always interested me more, which is this virtue notion of education, which is about um, creating a certain type of subject, uh, really a moral subject. Um, and so I think the role-playing is a way to get at that moral subjectivity in a safe environment and one where um, you can try out different things without much risk. So that, That's my justification for it anyways, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, it's all a big experiment, see what happens. So, do other professors get jealous because they're like, "Darn it, you get to play D and D." Well, I'm always like, I'll you, today. I'm, "Well, I'm always like, you can do it if you want." <laughs> I think they're all just too lazy. It's a lot of work. You know, it's much easier just to give someone a textbook and have them, like, you know, lecture from it. Right. I would agree. The ones who think that being a dungeon master is not a lot of work have never been a dungeon master. Right. So I think you know. I mean, the game, the game. Oh, whoops! There's a slip. Um, the class. <laughs> <laughs> the class is going to be a lot of work, but I think, you know, it'd be really interesting. And I'm hoping, um, you know, I'm hoping if you ask me the same question in a year, I'll have more insights for it. But I don't think you're saying in a year, which is great. Cause that means I'm going to schedule you in a year. Um, <laughs> yeah, we can, um, for a year from now. <laughs> but you know, I mean, I, um, the, the same way that you can train people to make a bench or to write an essay, you can train them to be creative and imaginative. And one of the things which our society lacks at the moment is the, imagina- the, the room to imagine alternative ways of being in the world and alternative ways of being human. So I think the gameplay allows you that space to do it where you don't have to worry about it. Do you think the classroom is also similar to that? I was just thinking because of your your mis your misspeak or calling the class the game, where a classroom is also kind of like a low stakes environment to try out new ways of of existing and being. 
Yeah, and I, I never thought of it, but I think you're right. You, you know, Wazinga, uh, the whole notion of the magic circle, right? Yes, I do know. So I, think I learned it from you. <laughs> I yeah, don't. Oh, uh, so Wazinga, <laughs> yes. he's a um, he's a, a, a Dutch, he's a, a Dutch scholar from the 1930s, early 1940s. Um, he was writing in occupied Holland, and he switched from writing about medieval. Um, history to writing about game theory. So he's really the one who started game theory. Hmm. And he had this notion of the magic circle. And so the magic circle is that kind of ambiguous, porous social shield which surrounds a game play area, uh, a playground. Um, and it's both temporal in the fact that it only exists at a certain time, and it's also spatial, that it doesn't exist everywhere. But within that space... Um, different rules and different forms of behavior are in a sense legal are okay. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, he uses soccer to talk about it. So um, if you sh- kicked a ball into a goal in normal space, it would just be a ball getting kicked into a goal. But if you kicked a ball into a soccer net during a game, then it's a goal, and it, you know, <laughs> goal, goal. You got people screaming. And, um, and, and, and again, but you can't, you know, it's not like Calvin and Hobbes where you can go anywhere you want. You've got to stay within that soccer field. Yeah. And there's, and there's a temporal limitation too, which is, um, you know, between the time the ref blows the whistle at the beginning of the game, the the time he, he or she blows the ref at the end. Okay. Um, You know, if you kick a ball into the goal after the ref blows the whistle, it doesn't count. Right. (laughs) And it was. I was. Then you just look like you're moping. <laughs> yeah, but I just remember watching, um, like a three-year-old, walk onto the soccer field during a game, and you know everyone rush out there and pull pull him back, and and then he smiled because he realized what power he had, and so then he walked onto <laughs> it again, and they pulled him back, and he started giggling, right? Because he he didn't know any better, but he had discovered the power of the of the magic circle. <laughs> But but to Jamie's point, I think the classroom is a magic circle to a certain extent because you're able to um, some of the normal ways that we interact with each other are suspended, and so I you know so say you know it's like a church right so a church is uh, is a, a sacred space a law court is a sacred space all of these are different magic circles um, and then um, you know. Uh, well, I, think yeah, it would I can't say, imagine like leaving a court and being like, I object and having that be meaningful at all. <laughs> right. Yeah, Any yeah. environment outside of the courtroom. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, cause there's, you're playing those rules. Yeah. And so, um, uh, so Kaiwa, who's, um, who's working off of Wazinga, who's writing in French, I don't know, in the fifties, he, he wrote what he called the most dangerous thesis, which is play and religion are really the same thing pretty much. Hmm. Um, and then Bella, who's a contemporary, he he basically argues that religion is a form of regressive play, which people forgot that they were playing, which I always think is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> we just—it's like um, oh, the duck. It's like we've been playing the game so long that we forgot we were in a game. Yeah. So you know, think about you know, think if you were a Martian and you came down and you watched someone doing a ritual. And then you also watch someone playing jacks or something. Oh. You wouldn't know. I mean, they both look completely arbitrary. And one, <laughs> they're obviously different because one, 
nothing is at stake in play where if you're going into a church and uh, everything is at stake you know the entire order of human of the of the universe is at stake in worship but in play nothing's at stake so they're not the same but they're <laughs> they, they have formal similarities i would say yeah i mean i love the idea of ritual as being very playful because i i think about that a lot when i'm teaching young students about jewish rituals which are very uh, specific <laughs> I guess I should, like, they they read, like, a very complicated set of game rules. Like, you must do it at this time, before this time, in this order, saying this, you know, before the sun does this. Um, But if you approach it with, like, a really serious air, it's not very fun. But if you approach it as kind of like, let's see if we can actually do all these things and not mess it up, it becomes a very playful, I don't know, like, entertaining moment that is very, like, enrapturing and entertaining. But, you know, but they're, and it's both, um... I mean, there there are a set of procedures for doing the ritual ritual properly, but there's also uh, a certain flexibility to how you do them. So mm-hmm. you know, I yeah. don't know, I don't know it for Judaism, but you know, like in Hinduism, if you you know, if you can't if you can't find the kusa grass, then you can use you know this other subjects, so, and if you can't find that, then you can use this. Or, oh yeah, yep. We have and, that and with, like, sure, there's I'm different sure categories of fruits that you can use. You know, some are <laughs> switch better out whatever others. you want. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's the same like with Halloween. You know, if you can't find a pumpkin to put in front of your house, maybe you can use a turnip or something. It will, <laughs> it will have the same ritual. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna carve a turnip this Halloween. I think that's how it started. <laughs> they were hard though, so people started using pumpkins. <laughs> oh, pumpkins! It's tis the season. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of play. I think depending on your community, it's more or less playful. I think it's one of those things like how rigid the rules are depends on kind of how rigid the authority figures, the refs are. That's a, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> like how quickly they throw down like a foul. <laughs> and, and, I, and, like... and it doesn't matter. Um, and it, it's not really within any specific tradition, you're going to have some people who are more playful than other people and have some sex within the tradition, which are more rigid. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, and, I, and again, I, you know, so even the Amish, I used to use the Amish as, you know, the good guys, but even they now are, you know, attacking each other and cutting off each other's beards. What? <laughs> they are. Is, is there like a dramatic Amish civil war happening? Well, yeah, a little one. You know, you just Google, Google, um, you know, Amish beard cutting and you'll get the whole story. This is so sad. There I thought they a, were the good guys. They also have the best haunted houses. About uh, the Amish and they were... Uh, it was like the Amish Mafia or something. Yeah. What? Yeah. That's a thing. I yeah. mean, it, I don't know. It, it could be made up, but it was a it was a reality TV show. <laughs> as as real as reality confused. is. <laughs> Which is at this point in our life is probably more important than reality. Right. <laughs> oh wow, that's so. I guess that that makes me. I guess I'm not shocked, but I'm as sad as when I found out that there were also Buddhists in the world that like used AK-47s and stuff. Yeah, Myanmar right now is not a good place. No, there, yeah. So you know, so you know, I mean, when I started studying Buddhism, I was very romantic about it. But all religions, including Buddhism, have been used to justify violence mm-hmm. and have been used to suppress other people. So it's just, uh, you know, I, I used to use the Amish as again. Maybe the Shakers. The Shakers are still good, but you know, there's not many left. So, what about the Quakers? I don't know. The game has a. They, I, I, I'm sure. I, I, next time I run into a Quaker expert, I'll ask if the Quakers have been violent. 
When was the last recorded Quaker, Quaker uprising? Yeah. <laughs> I I heard a story from my brother because uh, his his wife's family are are Quakers, um, and that every year for their taxes they'll they'll calculate how much of the budget is for war, and they won't pay that much for their percentage. <laughs> and I thought that was pretty wow. brilliant. Great. That's so much research. Yeah. Well, I'm, yeah, that's great. I should do that. Yeah. <laughs> I always wanted to just be able to give the money to what I want. Right. You know, like I, I give it to, you know, to to the national parks and education. Yeah. <laughs> and then they can, if other people want to pay to keep the war machine going, they can do that. Sure. But, yeah. You can uh, keep the national park Twitter, Twitter going yeah. strong. It's going strong. <laughs> We're speaking truth these days. The National Park Service Twitter. <laughs> Resist, Smokey the Bear. <laughs> Got his little Only you off. can stop totalitarianism. Global, global fascism. <laughs> oh man, um, I guess speaking of evil. Oh yeah, <laughs> evil. make this hard left. <laughs> um, you've been thinking about evil. I've, I've seen I mean, I at least have, twice. I have You've been, thought about evil at least, at least twice. twice. I have been thinking about evil. And, yeah, there's, so there's the two blog pieces on evil. Um, I got sidetracked because I am started to work on this Buddhist notion of mediation. For But now I'm going back to evil. Yeah, so I think evil's going to be the... <laughs> going back to evil. Uh, evil's going to be the, the next big project. And um, I, it's kind of, a, as you said, it's a left turn because I've always talked about play and more hopeful things, really, alternative things. But for me, the evil was, um, I was drawn to the evil for two reasons. First was, in religious studies, there's been, for I would say a good 25 years, this kind of social constructivist notion of what religion is. Um, And I think Jay-Z Smith's notion of imagining religion, which I'm sure I had you read, Jamie, um, you did. Which has to do with this notion that religion is not an objective category out there in the world, but religion is something which the scholar or religion brings to the, to the material. Um, and I think because of the current political climate, that understanding of religion started to seem to me naive and harmful in some ways. So I wanted to know if there was kind of a more normative form of, you know, categories of religion and so for me, evil was a way to try to start to get at some of that, to talk about evil, um, because you can't help but have a... It's, it's hard to have a detached engagement when you're talking about evil. Um, and so that was what was interesting to me about it. And I can't remember the second thing, because I've been talking so long. But. <laughs> <laughs> We're just listening with rapt attention um, to our... To our uh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, so, I mean... And, oh, here's the second thing. I remember it now. Um, <laughs> so, if, if you look, you know, so what people consider to be evil, obviously, is constituted by the historical context in which it happens. Um, and so, there was a big rupture in the Lisbon earthquake which I think was 1767. You'd have to look this up. But um, basically it was a big rupture. Before that, in Western culture, um, there was a pretty close tie between God and evil. So there was this notion of natural evil, so that if there was a hurricane or an earthquake, um, it was God punishing everybody for um, something that they had done. But the, 
the Lisbon earthquake, no one could figure out why all these people were killed. Like 50,000 people were killed um, and yeah. no one could figure it out. So it, it started the same way that everyone wrote about 9-11. Everyone in Europe was writing about the Lisbon earthquake. Everyone from Goethe to Kant was writing about the, the Lisbon earthquake. And so there's a big change there. And it changes from this kind of notion of natural evil to a moral evil. And a moral evil is basically that... Uh, Evil happens not because of nature, but because of human beings. And so mm. if we can have a good enlightenment civilization, we can get rid of evil because uh, we'll, we'll educate and edify human beings in such a way that evil will cease to exist. Um, this, was gone, this was going really well until Auschwitz, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then Auschwitz kind of undoes that because suddenly natural evil doesn't work anymore and moral evil doesn't work anymore. And so post-Auschwitz, uh, post there's no one, there's really, there's like one or two people dealing with evil, um, especially within the Jewish tradition. You know, there's, there's Anna Arndt um, and the notion of banality of evil, but there's really not much written on evil at all. And interestingly, at the same time, um, you get this huge explosion of popular culture notions of evil. So you get all the horror movies and you get the monster movies and all of these kind of things are happening. And, and I always figured it had to be because um, the elites weren't dealing with evil. So basically popular culture took it up. Hmm. Oh, um, super funny. And then, I, so I think a similar thing happened after nine 11. So after nine 11, um, people don't know how to deal with evil. Uh, elites are, are scared to blame it on anybody. And so I, my guess in the kind of the, um, the underlying theory where I started the, the, the project was that video games are this space in which these notions of evil are being worked out in popular culture. Hmm. And yeah, I mean, if I remember, I think right after nine 11, there was an explosion of like these first person shooter games set and like terrorist occupied type of territories yeah. that you were right. responding yeah. to and trying to like navigate. Yeah, so I think, you know, and so um, this was a place where, for better or worse, people were able to work out these notions of evil. Um, and then the evil in video games differ from evils in movies because of the interactivity. You have to decide to pull the tr trigger. Um, right. You're not just a passive passenger. So, um, and that's really as far as I've gotten with that. I haven't, you know, I have those, those two blogs on it, and I've been reading, a, <laughs> reading about evil since you know, early Judaism up to the present moment, but I haven't written too much on it yet. That's the okay. evil, the evil. <laughs> Is it hard to be playful while reading about evil? Yeah, but I like that. <laughs> I mean, scholarship, but you know, like the cloud, you know, like these, um, or like these uh, accelerators, these giant physical uh, physics accelerators, mm -hmm. you know, oh, yeah, they, the... they speed stuff up to the speed of light and then smash it into each other. <laughs> That's how I think about scholarship. Basically, I'll get my, my, get my video games going really fast and the evil going really fast and I'll smash it into each other. and See what happens. See what happens. I guess I, um, Kyle actually is the one that pointed out this quote, but I'm going to read it because I wrote it down in, yeah. in my journal um, as one that was really beautiful. And I'm going to read it and we can talk about it. Or you can be like, yeah, I said that. It's great. Um, whichever one. But it's the, the quote that video games not only give face to evil, but also embody practices of hope. Yeah. And I, it was, 
I think because there's so much for me also because I've been kind of looking at the community of gaming in general, which is not always pleasant. <laughs> Some might say quite evil sometimes. Um, thinking about games as not only a source of frustration and kind of blockage for me personally, but also like a, a playground of hope. Um, I think video games have the potential to create alternative ways of being in the world. That's, that's what I'm thinking about. And there's not much, we live in a pretty, sometimes I feel like we're living through the dark ages and basically our job is to keep this, the little kind of the embers of hope alive for a time when they can be, they can feed the flames of some future form of community, which doesn't exist yet. And so I think video games have the potential to do that. And I think about it through two lenses. One is this notion of critical play. And so critical play is not like a review on Amazon for a toaster, <laughs> which is a lot of people think, you know, that's what crit critical play is. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's some good toasters. I'm not putting toasters down. <laughs> I like my, um, uh, but critical play is playing in such a way that you understand the social environment in which the game was made and the kind of the vision of the people producing it. And, you know, and, and, and some, you know, obviously some games like the big studio games aren't going to have this as much, but you know, I don't know if you ever played like the game Columbine. Have you played that one? No. Um, I've seen let's play videos of it. Yeah. So it's basically, you know, so it's not, maybe it's not the best example for hope, but, but it does, it, it does. It, it's a way to communicate, what it must have been like to be those teenagers. Um, and, and so I think video games can create the procedural level of the video game as a way of creating these different systems uh, in the world and kind of modeling them. Um, and, then, and then there's also this notion of critical making, um, which I like. And so um, a lot of times critics limit themselves to belief and kind of ideas um, and the printed word. But for me, uh, critical making creates pieces of art, really, and other forms of social objects which call into question some of the assumptions that are out there. Um, and it could be, you know, I, um, I like to work with my hands. I like to make things. Um, I like to write, too, but the critical making... Uh, fits in again to that notion of role playing, I think. And again, you know, you can imagine, Jamie, um, you could have your students create little dungeons or adventures to, you know, um, and I think that would be a much better way for them to understand some of the concepts they're working with than just memorizing them or critiquing them. Yeah, I mean, it's a really, there's something about play that I think really opens up brains and minds to like new ways of thinking and doing things so if you're teaching or trying to do anything there's something about that playful mindset that I think mm -hmm. for me personally works much better when I was playful in class it was much easier for me to remember and engage than when I was like studying furiously for a very serious thing <laughs> like, yeah, it, not that play can't be serious play can be serious but there's like okay. a level of a 
but yeah, plays how we separation, plays, I guess. Plays the way that we learn how to model and do things. You know, like um, like the like you know, again, like the whole notion of playing house. You think that you know people that children did that forever. If you actually look at the history of playing house, it's really a post World War II phenomenon, which was about regendering girls into the role of housewife. Hmm. Oh. Yeah. So you know. So I mean. <laughs> I know. No. No. But you know. So. But I mean. So. So play is a powerful thing. It's. Um, but it's trivialized because it's seen as being something which children do. But of course, children do it because they have to learn really quickly how to be a, you know, a member of society, and it's an easy way to a do human. It. A human. Um, Warning. But. But. But like in the classroom, if you think about you know like say you're, you're teaching someone a new theory, um, I always think of it in three steps. The first step is. Um, you're basically trying to get them to sympathetically understand what's going on. Um, you know, so like if you're learning about Durkheim and religion, you want them to sympathetically understand how Durkheim posits religion as being um, different than the profane and what that means. And then the second step is critiquing the hell out of it <laughs> and saying, you know, well, that doesn't work for, you know, sacred cows. It doesn't work for my church, you know, it doesn't work. Um, and then the third one, which for me is the most fun, is where the critical making comes in. So you've got to let them do something with that idea. And that's where the games come in, is helping with that third aspect of it. I, um, I love the idea of critiquing, one, critiquing games, but I'm thinking, Kyle, of all the times that you play games purposefully the way they're not supposed to be played. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> like, um... What is it like, Kyle? You were doing Bioshock where you weren't going to use weapons. Oh yeah, we just used yeah. uh, the wrench in the yeah. In the powers. <laughs> Does Kyle do this? Yeah, yeah, Kyle, I do that yeah. with GTA. I love to wander through GTA and not kill anything. Yeah, I, I love uh, like following the the traffic lights and everything. And just yeah, it drives the other people. In the, I love to do it online because it drives people crazy. Yeah. I've forgotten all those sorts of things. I'm like, slow down, it's turning red. <laughs> like turning GTA into Second Life. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's there's a great um there's there's a really good project I use with my students which is called unboarding, and you take um like so say you have like a quiz and you have a bunch of questions that you need to have them answer, um, you have them unboard a game, and so unboarding is that they make seven different changes to the game, um and it can be like changing the cards or changing the dice or changing the board, um and so it's really fun because they get to learn how a game is put together, um. And then they also get to, you know, make the game. So that's a really, you know, that's a, it's a really, it's one I use every class pretty much. Hmm. Ooh, so like you do that with board games? Yeah, like, you know, um, you know, basically just a normal board game like Shoots and Ladder or Clue or Monopoly. Has anyone made Monopoly better? Um, yeah, people have done it. So, you know, they've made it, they've gotten rid of the money. Um, they've done all sorts of different things. Usually they, they usually actually end up breaking the games. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because the games, yeah, you know, they're really boring. You know, they're not much fun to play. Because they, you don't realize how, you know, you kind of have to have that, um, that ludic envelope to make a game interesting. Have you ever mm-hmm. played, have you ever played the game, you ever played the game Flow? If you, do you know this game? Or Journey? Flow, Journey? Of, I think yes. I've watched Kyle play both of them. Kyle, I think Flow is the one with the flower. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, actually, that's, the Flow is before the flower. Flow is, um, <laughs> is an amoeba. I think ah, the flower okay. is called Paradise. Is that the, that one? I, it's made all by that game company, which is the same. Okay. Same they company. do pleasant things, but they they um so in so there's this um a psychologist who's uh, Chick Setmihalyi who's this Hungarian psychologist who worked in Chicago and he had that whole notion of flow. Oh yeah, and mm-hmm. so flow is that um and so these people in graduate school they um 
they had this idea, really what I call the ludic envelope. I forget what they called it, but basically it's that um, you want a game to not be too hard or too easy. Mm-hmm. And you want to keep people in that zone or of fun, which is a little bit of a challenge, but so much challenge they, they rage. Right. Yeah, uh, and flow is kind of like this, I don't want to say like ideal mental space, but like a, a moment where you're absorbed into the game, like... Very ele- elegantly, maybe is the word. I'm yeah, no, that's that's yeah. So I think, and and the thing is that um, most games that we play, even like shoots and ladders and things like that, they you know they're pretty fine tuned, and we just don't realize it. And so it's really <laughs> they're really easy to destroy and make really to break and not make them fun to play. <laughs> I'm surprised that Monopoly is so uh, is possible to make it less fun to play. monopoly is really fun you just have to think like a a capitalist and basically you never let anyone out of the game you just keep i always would hire all my siblings (laughs) so they would all be playing for me (laughs) i would never let them go bankrupt i would just keep them kind of like on on minimal support (laughs) (laughs) welfare welfare basically yeah monopoly welfare uh well now now I want to go break Monopoly. Yeah. So what's what's your goal with the podcast? That's my question. I know. Uh... Yeah. So for me, I've I've become over the years increasingly interested in in games, and not games as in like a game specifically, but in playfulness. And so I've been increasingly interested in seeing how different people incorporate playfulness or games into their their life. Um, sometimes directly, like really talking to people who make games and saying like what's that like like what's your thing like who are you and then broadening it out to talk to people who are just using playfulness as a thing that they do so like I'm really interested for instance in my friend Jeremy who plays not plays well actually he might play practices improv does improv and kind of talking about how playfulness kind of makes its way into theater um so the the phrase itself is like thinking playfully and playing thoughtfully so, like, how can we make our our thinking process a little bit more playful so we can expand a little bit about what I can conceive of as possible in my day-to-day life? But also when I'm playing, thinking very carefully about what is going on and happening in this moment. I, I like I like that notion about playfulness expanding what we think is possible. And I wish I had said that when you asked me about role-playing game, because I think that's what it does. Um, and, and, but it does it... Uh, in some way, what role play allows you to get outside of yourself, right? Um, and uh, and so, and I think it's um, I think it's undervalued. I can say though, have you guys ever seen the movie Dark Dungeon? No, no, but I'm now having like an increasing list of things I need to do for homework <laughs> after this podcast. Do you remember those those um? They used to have those little um, those little pamphlets, the the chick pamphlets. Do you yes. remember these? You would find them on like a toilet yeah. or something. Yeah. Well, there mm-hmm. was one about Dungeons and Dragons. So um, in 2014, uh, a group of people basically used that as a primary source to create a 40 minute long YouTube thing called Dark Dungeon, which is a, <laughs> like about the evils of Dungeons and Dragons. That's incredible, <laughs> and it's hilarious because they play it straight. So you watch it, and you're not sure if they're being serious or not, but I, I mean, I hope they're not being serious. Um, but my favorite, <laughs> I mean, uh, humor is, is a thin line between like, yeah, I mean, you know, it or is this a joke? there's a couple of times in there where you think it's going to like break into pornography because the acting's so bad, but, 
but it's um but the pizza it, guy shows up yeah i've but, got a but, hot slice for you yeah but, um but the, the the best part the my favorite part and i wish I, I you know if i if i could have this on my tombstone this is what i would have it has uh there's this uh this one he's a senior and saying we've been trying to get rid of the rpgers which are the role-playing people We've been getting, trying to get rid of the RPGers, but they're just so damn popular. <laughs> <laughs> and then it shows, it shows this, this group of like five just ungodly beautiful, really suave <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons players dressed in black walking down the hall in slow motion. Oh my gosh. Do they have the like the Yeah, you know, so it looks like you know. Uh, just like, you know, I don't remember, but it basically they just like really, really cool and popular like during the Matrix. <laughs> I wish that was like, my life. Uh, yeah, basically, but it's just so funny because it obviously was made by, I mean, that's like the funniest part of the whole movie to me. So and yeah. I forget why I'm saying this. Because <laughs> we're thinking playfully. We're expanding we're the, yeah. the realms of we're possibility expanding. of the conversation. But I oh, do think, so yeah. I, I yeah, can actually reference, and I, I've chickened out so many times when I wanted to study this, but it was actually in one of your classes where we were talking about um, Zen Cohen's. And I remember you talking about how the way that they're set up is very similar to knock-knock jokes. Well, they're, they're actually, if, if I understand it correctly, and I'd have to go dig around to find them, yeah. but they are actually directly descended from Chinese riddle books. Yes. Yeah. See, and I think when I realized that there was like an element... Because these things are also supposed to transmit, like, timeless wisdom. I don't know if they succeed or not, but to some extent, they hold some wisdom in them. And so when I started thinking about how this wisdom has been encapsulated in these very playful structures, which to me were always very funny, and, like, I enjoyed them, and I enjoyed reading about them, um, I got really, like, involved in this idea of humor and seriousness and humor and, like, religion and spirituality being very, like, close together. And I still haven't got it. I haven't written about it ever, but I, I keep thinking about it and coming back to it when I'm thinking about. You're still young. You got time. I know, but but the world is is, <laughs> is close to its expiration date. Well, I mean, there's there's a whole bunch. <laughs> I mean, two two things here. One is like you know, Bakhtin, Bakhtin, who who was writing in Soviet Russia, and he was writing about Carnival because he wanted to write about. He said the only way, only way to conquer totalitarianism is to laugh in its face. Um, Not, that, yes. that laughter will always get rid of fear, and that you know, I mean, and so basically, the carnival and the laughter will show that the emperor has no clothes. You know, I'm basically paraphrasing him. So I think <laughs> it's really important. Um, but then with the with the humor, I mean, what's funny to me about the Coens is that they're not transmitting information. You know, who cares if a dog has a Buddha nature or not? Really, right? what you're transmitting is a particular experience. And it's the same thing with jokes, right? I mean, you know, there's nothing worse than having to explain a joke to somebody <laughs> because it's like my entire conversation with Kyle. Most of the time, <laughs> me explaining my jokes to Kyle and him being unimpressed. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I'm a typical academic. I kind of got into it by mistake. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's some people who seem like they have the temperament for it. And it's not that I, I, I mean, I think I could have done the same stuff somewhere else and it would have been fine. But I don't know. I kind of, I'm going to end on a, on a hopeful note because yeah. I think that even if you're doing the Academy differently and I, I have other critiques about maybe the Academy taking itself too seriously yeah. <laughs> sometimes and needing a bit of uh, playfulness, but you managed to become the head of the department. So in some ways you're kind of broadening 
the possibilities for what academia could could be. And I should say, it's not so much the academy. I think it's more the humanities, really, right? Mm. Um, and you know, because I mean, if you within the within the university, there's three different cultures. There's the physical sciences, the social sciences, and the humanities. That's true. And I and I consider myself a humanist, um, but I think the humanities are kind of um, they are not perceived by the greater society as being really needed at this point in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I mean, people could understand why we need the hard sciences because we need to send rockets to the moon and we need vaccines. <laughs> and people can understand the social sciences because, you know, we have to understand why people are terrorists. Um, but it's really much harder to get people to understand why the humanities are important. And I think, you know, from my mind, the humanities are important because it's really hard to be a human being these days. And the humanities, <laughs> it's really hard to be human. Yeah, that's true. Um, but the humanities help you understand not only what it means to be human, but kind of, as you were saying, they allow you to perceive of alternative ways of being human. Um, as my friend would say, and he would say this about dogs, because so we're, um, that you need to have the language to express your own freedom and to be able to be free. That's what he would say. But he still can't make dogs talk. <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, but but basically, well, the reason I brought uh, that the reason for the spiel is that I think for the humanities to survive, the humanities have to think of themselves differently, and they have to think of themselves outside of the book. Um, they have to think of themselves outside of kind of traditional elite notions of of, of cultural production. So they have to think about popular culture and things like video games, um, and they also have to think about what it means not just to critique in the sense of a argument against but about how to make new things um and for me that's what um that i think within the all that stuff is really easy to get in the humanities it just kind of needs to be given the right fertilizer um which is all the bullshit we've been talking about (laughs) (laughs) i can't i can't honestly continue the podcast at this point because that's the best way (laughs) to end the conversation (laughs) So I'm gonna call that. I'm gonna call that quits. We're gonna end on some bullshit. Bullshit. Critical bullshit. All right. Thank you so much to Dr. Grieve for coming and talking with us today. If you're interested in his work and what he's up to, you can buy his new book, CyberZen: Imagining Authentic Buddhist Identity, Community, and Practices in the Virtual World of Second Life. Uh, you should buy it not only because it's amazing, but also because my name is in it. If you look at the acknowledgments. And then the methods section, smack dab, right in there. Uh, otherwise, you can follow him also on gpgrieve.org uh, and check out his stuff as it comes up. He's also got a CV, so you can access all of his articles, or where they are. You can't access all of them, but you can find out where you could. And that's it for today, folks. Thanks for listening in. Once again, I'm JD from GamingBroadly.com. And I'm Kyle, uh, not of GamingBroadly.com. Illustrator of JamieBroadly.com? <laughs> Can I be that? Is that what I am? I did design stuff. Uh, Kyle is the man who's perpetually having an existential crisis. Of existentialcrisis.com. What if that's taken? <laughs> it 100% is already taken. Uh, yeah? It is. It is. Okay. By you? Do you have <laughs> do, it? Is that how you I know? I do not have it. That is not how I know.
But I like the idea that we've talked this entire evening about religion and kind of spirituality and all that stuff, and we're ending on an existential crisis. That's every every time. <laughs> it's no different. It's, it's every episode. Yeah. <laughs> well, we hope you've enjoyed this particular episode of Existential Crises. Please like and subscribe us on iTunes if you found us interesting or not. We could appreciate it regardless of... Uh, of your affection. You can also find us on Podbean, Stitcher, Google Music, and probably any of your fancy doohickey podcast uh, aggregator things on your phone. You can also check us out on GamingBroadly.com and uh, leave us a comment. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, what kind of existential crisis you're having today. Find us on the Google at at Gaming Broadly. (laughs) Yes, please do. Let's connect. It'll be great. Um, mm-hmm. We look forward to, to talking with you guys next time. See you soon. Bye. Is he gone? Yep. I wonder if he'll come back.